Well, hey guys, good morning. If, uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, my name is Jimmy Britt. I'm the lead pastor uh, at Rocky River. I'm about to give our message for, uh, for you guys, but we need to dismiss our kids K through fifth grade and also our middle schoolers. And uh, guys, hang on, uh, adults, hang on before you start talking to each other. Let me, let me get everything out just for those who are new. Um, Mom and dads, if you're new with us today, you're welcome to go out with your K through fifth grader. They meet in the big room to my right, help them get settled in. Then you can come back in here. Middle schoolers can go out this door. They meet in the green room uh, to the left hand side. Everybody else, you guys turn around, greet one another, and then you can be seated for today's message. Thank you. Is that from you? Thank you. Hey, boy. Good to see you. Thank really you. good to I'm see you. I'm working on it. I'm getting out of you. It's been three years I've come and I'm starting to get an English video. I'm not going to coach. Or fancy. I got a rental license. Awesome. Go That's right. Good. I'm glad. It's good to see you. I'm proud of you. That's right. Well, once again, hello. How are you guys doing? Come on, how are you guys doing? Aren't you excited? Ben, it's, uh, it's a great day. We had a, an awesome 9 o'clock service, and uh, I'm excited about this one as well. It's great to see you guys here today. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to expand that just a little bit today and pick up verses 11 and 12. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And you guys uh, know probably that we're in a series right now called, What on Earth Am I Here For? And inside of this series, I've been doing what I'm calling just a mini-series, so I can have a way of thinking about it myself. But I started talking about God's calling on our lives. Every person has a calling on his or her life. And uh, today I'm sort of going to wrap up this little mini-series inside of this larger series. I'm going to tie up the loop on understanding God's calling on our lives. And I have three important things that I want to share with you. And I also want to give you a challenge today as well. So, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You guys ready? Everybody ready? Everybody leaning forward? The air is on. It feels a little bit cooler in here now than it did at the 9 o'clock service. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lord, and for whoever turned the air down. Okay, here we go. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, or Mount Horeb, also called the wilderness or the wilderness desert or the mountain of Sinai. It's also called the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while, or why the bush is not burning up. Now, just, just as, a, as a side word, just in helping you when you're reading the Bible. When you're reading the Bible on your own, don't read it in a wooden sort of way. You know, like, uh, like you might read the directions on how to set your VCR. Or, or you know, just, just e even... even um, Less than that, like something that doesn't really require your attention. Like I was on a plane a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and I, I noticed that um, most people, whenever the... Do they still call people that work at the airlines on the plane, do they call them stewardesses? Flight attendants, flight attendants. I want to get that right, it's important. 
I noticed that when the flight attendant was standing up giving directions for what you do in case the plane is going to crash, they're just not paying attention at all. And if there's any thought given to it, it's just a ho-hum, yeah, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then they just put it away. They don't really give it any attention. Don't read the Bible that way. These are real people. These are real events. These are things that really happen. So when you read it, try to imagine. Try to imagine Moses. And if you don't have a picture of what Moses might have looked at, just imagine Charlton Heston, right? Yet I realize that's kind of an older illustration. So if, if uh, you're under 40, you might not even know who Charlton Heston is. But... You know, just try to have some mental image of here's Moses, he's a shepherd, and uh, he's taking care of these sheep and goats, and he's out in the wilderness. Now, he sees this burning bush. It's probably not the only time he's ever seen a burning bush, but what makes this one stand out is that the bush is not being consumed. It's not turning to ashes. It just, it's like it is lit up in flames. And so he thinks, wow, I've got to go over and check this out. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And so when there's exclamation there, you have to exclaim it out. Read these things out loud. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And this is God's way of saying, hey, don't take this matter lightly. Another time I was on a plane, but years ago, I was flying with Southwest Airlines out of Raleigh. And Southwest was very popular at the time. They, they still are now, I suppose. But uh, they were very popular for sort of doing things out of the ordinary. Like the flight attendants didn't dress like, um, you know, in business casual or, or even business clothing. They would, could wear dockers and golf shirts type thing, and the, um, the pilot, the pilot, as they are giving the warning instructions for, uh, you know, what happens if the cabin loses compression, the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and says, folks, because he, he recognized what I've recognized, and you probably have too, that a lot of people just don't pay any attention. He says, you might want to pay attention to this. We could land in an ocean. We could hit a mountain. You, you might need this. And so let me tell you something. All of a sudden, everybody's reaching down in the barf pocket in front of them to pull out their card and look at that. Okay, yeah, what, what do I do in case something really, really happens here? You know, he, he has our attention. Well, God calls out to Moses to, to get his attention. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God says. Come to me with respect. That, that's the point. I want, you, I want you to pay attention. I want you to slow down a little bit. Don't approach this casually like the flight attendant standing up in front of you saying something you've heard a hundred times. Listen, because you might need this. And I would say because this is a scripture, you will need this. So slow down. Give this attention. Pay reverence to what the Lord is saying here. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now Moses has been living out in the Sinai wilderness for some 40 years. But 40 years before that, he grew up in the Pharaoh's home. And so he was familiar with all of the Egyptian gods, their false gods, and the trickery, and the magic, and those kind of things. And so... God identifies Himself for a number of reasons, but one of them is to say, hey, this is not just some um, Egyptian magical trick by one of the soothsayers of a pagan God. This is the Hebrew God, the true and living God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the true and living God. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. You ever wonder if God knows about your situation? 
God knows about the misery that you're in? You ever wonder if God knows about the bad work environment that you're in? Do you ever wonder if God knows about the broken relationships that you have? Do you ever wonder if God knows about your marriage that's falling apart? He does. He knows about it and He cares about it. He says, I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. In other words, I know exactly what their situation is and I'm concerned about their suffering. I believe that God may have brought some people here today just to hear that part right there. I know about your suffering. I know about your hardships. I know about your hard time. I've heard you crying. I know what you're dealing with. I know what you're going through. Verse 8, he says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And he restates it one more time. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. You remember I said that when you're reading a story like this, you want to try to imagine this being played out in front of you. Now, I don't know what God's tone is. I mean, I'm not there listening to the conversation. We, we have a written account of the words. I don't know what Moses' tone or demeanor is. But I would have imagined there, there's some great relief on his behalf. I mean, he cares about his people too. For 40, maybe even 80 years, as, as long as he has been able to identify with his own people who are in slavery back there, and probably for 40 years he's been thinking, God, where are you? What's the state of the people? Do, do you not even care about them? But God shows up in his time according to his own plan, and he says, I have heard their cries, I'm going in to rescue them. And so Moses has to be thinking, yes, yes, God, that's what I've been waiting on. That's what I've been looking for. And he's probably thinking, wow, things are about to change for my people back there. What he doesn't know is that his life is about to change too. Verse 10, God says, so now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. <gasps> you know, he must have had some questions. Like, Lord, I've been out here for 40 years. I look like an 80-year-old Charlton Heston. I don't, I don't have the haircut anymore. I don't look Egyptian. Back then, I had them and vigor, you know, when I was 40. I mean, I, I was up to the challenge then. But now, I don't have the headdress. I I, the, the Pharaoh that I knew back then, he, he's dead. Somebody else is in charge. Uh, I, don't, I don't even have a map. With all the new streets on it, things have changed. I'm not even up with all their customs there. What do you, what do you mean? You, you want to send me now? But this is how Moses responds. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? If, there's a, if there was a, a grammatical sign for stress... You'd put that there along with the question mark. What do you mean? Me? How am I supposed to do this? How in the world is this going to happen? And God tells him, in verse 12, God said, I will be with you. This is one of the most powerful verses in the whole story of Moses and the stories of Exodus and God leading His people out of Egyptian slavery. And I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you. That it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people of, uh, out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine. 
uh, in between the services, the 9 and the 1045. And uh, Les is a hunter. He's also um, my neighbor. A couple of weeks ago, he was uh, trying out a new gun. He, um, Les does a lot of bow hunting. I don't, I don't know what season we're in right now. Does anybody know? What, are we in deer season still? We're not in season? Okay. So he wasn't hunting. Um, no, really, he, he wasn't hunting. They, he, but he had, he had bought a, 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 a rifle. He's a bow hunter, and this buddy has got him into uh, to rifle hunting. And uh, they were miles out in the middle of nowhere. They had a deer stand, and this guy had been showing Les how to you know, tune in his uh, scope and how to line everything up. And uh, they, were, they were in their stand, but they had a target that was nailed to a tree, but it was like off the side of the tree, fastened to the tree, but the target that they were aiming at was not directly in line with the tree, but just off to the side. They'd shot at it a number of times, and uh, Les's buddy wanted to pack up his stuff and, and move on, but Les said, no, I want to take one more shot. And uh, while this guy is gathering up his gear, Les said, I, I, you know, I hit the target a couple times. And he said, I was right on it, you know, looking through the scope, just this little scope. And I don't know how far away he was. And Les said, I had my finger on. I hope it looks like I'm holding this gun right, Jamie. Am I? I know I've got it like right at my face. I'm sure he didn't have it right there, but you know what I'm getting at here. He, he had it lined up. He's looking through there. He said, I was putting pressure on the trigger, he said, literally, I was waiting for the sound of the shot to be fired. And a man stood up right behind my target with the surveyor's will. And, and he said, I, I dropped the gun. And he said, by the time I put the gun down, he said, the guy standing behind my target saw less he said he saw me, and he just dropped to his knees and started sobbing. Les went down his stand and went over to the man to, to check on him and you know, said something like, man, do you know how... He said, I literally I had pressure on the trigger. I, was, I, I don't know why the trigger didn't go off. He said, you should be dead. And they both started crying together. And uh, Les and I... Spend a lot of time together talking about the Lord and praying and stuff like that. I was very proud of him because he just started praying with this man. He prayed and cried for a while and um, they exchanged numbers and went their own way. And uh, the guy called Les this past week and he said, Les, I just want to let you know that that experience it changed my life. And he said, I realized that I needed to get in church. And so he said, I've, I'm in church, I've got my family in church, and uh, I know that the Lord has a reason for me to be here. And like, if you're a hunter or you've shot a gun, I mean, you know what that's like. You put finger, your, your finger on that trigger, you put pressure on it. Literally, he said, as a hunter, I'm waiting on the sound to come next. He said, I don't know why it didn't go off. He said that God does have a purpose and a plan for that man's life. That must be it. And it's true. God has a plan for that 56-year-old man that has a couple of children of his own and three grandchildren. And I don't know what it is, but God has a plan for him. And God has a plan for your life too. We've talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of different things when it comes to God's calling on our lives. But I want to give you three things this morning that I feel like you need to know from this passage to understand God's calling on your life. And here's the first one. So, if you have your notes out, or you've got something you can jot some things down, and there's no fill in the blanks, but just write this down. Number one, my call, and I want you to put this in a personal pronoun for your own life, my calling is for others. My, my calling, God's purpose, God's ministry for my life is for other people. It, it's not for me, it's not about me. You know, the first line that you read in Rick Warren's book, What on Earth Am I Here For? Or the purpose-driven life is, 
It's not about you. And that's true. Life is not about me. My calling is not about me. And that should be, that's true for my life. It's true for your life. Look, look at the life of Moses. When God is calling Moses, He says, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to set them free from their slavery. I'm going to set them free from their captors. I've heard their cries. I've heard their pleas. I'm going to release them and I'm going to do it using you. Here's your calling. Here's your purpose. I want you to lead them out of slavery, out into the wilderness. I'll make them my people I'm going to use you. But he didn't say, you know, Moses, I have a great, cushy, nice life all set up for you. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make you a rock star in the Bible. You're going to be so popular that people are going to talk about you in verbal form for centuries. And then... They're going to write down these stories about you and collect them. You're going to be known as the lawgiver. One of these days, you're even going to be so famous that Charlton Heston's going to play you in the Ten Commandments. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. You're special, Moses. It's all about you. Who was this calling about? It's God's plan. But it was to help those other people, right? Your calling is to help other people too. In fact, you may have never heard it this way before. But your call is to help set the captives free. There are several places in the Gospels where Jesus gives his mission statement or his purpose statement in life. And why he came. My favorite one is in the Gospel of John, John 10.10. Write that down and you can look it up later. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief who is Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But he says, I have come that you might have abundant life. Full life. Even life that goes beyond what you can experience here in this physical realm. Life that is eternal. He also says in other places that I've come to set the captives free. Now, when the Jewish people or, or the people who were alive at this time, when Jesus spoke those words in first century Judea, they were thinking, all right, we've been waiting on this. We, we've been waiting on Messiah. This is exactly the message we need. But they didn't understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. They were all excited because at first they thought that Jesus eventually was going to go buy a white horse and he was going to um, saddle up and put some armor on, get a sword and a shield and a spear. And that maybe these guys who were following Jesus around at the time, they were going to be his war cabinet and together they were going to raise up an army so that they could overthrow the Roman government who at the time they were in charge of the known world. And they had their thumb on these Jewish people. All right, here is our liberator. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus didn't come to be that kind of Messiah. He didn't come to free us from worldly oppression or our physical oppressors here. He came to set us free from our slavery to sin and death. He came to do for us what no army could ever do for us. Jesus also said to His disciples, follow Me. Why? What for? To learn what it really means to follow Jesus. 
Doesn't really sound like an answer though, does it? Jesus came to live not for himself, but to live and die for others. If it was all about Jesus trying to take care of himself, he would have never come to earth. He came to live, die, and live again so that those who put their faith and trust in him can live forever too. And where he leads us to in the Gospels is to a place where we have to decide if we're going to live for ourselves or if we're going to live for him and others. We have to decide if we're just going to live to serve ourselves or if we're going to give our lives so that others might know Jesus. I'll just go ahead and take the mystery out of your calling. Here's here's God's calling on your life. It's to joining Him to set the captives free. It's to point people to Jesus. Period. This is an exciting time of the year because we have uh, students who are graduating from, from high school, going to college. I think we have five this year that we're going to be uh, losing to, to go to college or go out into the work world and that kind of thing. It's exciting to hear about their plans and what they want to do. I'm going to major in this. I'm going to major in that. Um. If any of you guys are in here, let, let, me just, let me just tell you that that is exciting. You ought to make plans. But God's calling for your life doesn't really have anything to do with your career. I mean, you might fulfill your calling through your career. But the way you earn a living is not necessarily connected with your calling. It's a big mistake to try to combine the two. I'll just go ahead and tell you this way. I'll tell you what may just drive your mom and dad crazy, but I I believe it's true. I don't think God cares if you're a doctor or a lawyer. I don't think He cares if you're a homemaker. I don't think in the business world he cares if what the widgets are that you're selling. Those things may be a part of your journey or the adventure of living out God's calling and purpose for your life, but not necessarily. Here's what I believe God wants to know. While you're in college, will you honor me? Will you serve other people? Will you point other people with your life and your words To me. When you're a doctor, wherever you're a doctor, whether it's in Carolina or California, will you live for me? Will you point other people to me? Will you share your faith with other people? Will you serve others? Will you help other people? Blind people, people who are spiritually blind, help to open their eyes to real life? Will you tell other hungry people where to find the bread of life? Whether you work as an insurance person, whether you work at Starbucks, whether you sell tools, whether you rent tools, No matter what you do or where you do it, what God wants to know is, will you do it for my glory? Will you partner with me in setting the captives free? Our lives, our calling, is not about us. It's about others.
Here's the second thing that you need to know about God's calling on your life. My calling is connected to others. My calling is connected to other people. Life is not meant to be an individual sport. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be done together. If we were to look through the rest of the pages of Moses' story in the book of Exodus, we would find that there are other people who become a part of this story who help Moses out. In Micah 6, 4, God, as He is speaking through the prophet Micah, talking to the children of Israel about when He set them free, He said, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Aaron is Moses' brother. Miriam is his sister. And then there are a host of other people who help him, like Jethro, his father-in-law, and Joshua, who becomes um, Moses' replacement after Moses is died and buried. And then there are scores of other people along the way. So this task that God has given to Moses, this calling on his life, it's not just about Moses. And and it's not a one-man show. There are other people, lots of other people, who are a part of Moses' calling. He's connected to other people. He needs other people. I'll tell you that that is a tough lesson for pastors and church planters to learn, me included. And I still... Learn today. Not that it's about me. I, I don't know that I've ever thought it was about me. But the fact that you need other people. That you can't be the one who does everything. Someone was asking me about something in between the break. About this or that. And I just said, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Now there was a time when I knew everything. I don't know where we keep some stuff. I don't know where we order some things from. I don't know who makes this call or that call. It's on a list. I can check it. I could find it. But I have no idea. But like at our church, it's not a one-man show. It's not Jimmy's church. It's our church. And how ridiculous would it be for me to try to be in here preaching and then be in all these classrooms trying to teach them too? and be the guy out in the parking lot, and being the guy out in the lobby. It just wouldn't work. You see that? Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he talks about the body, or when he talks about the church, he compares it to a body. The local church, it's the body of Christ. The local church, the global church, it's the body of Christ. But listen, Christ is at the head of it. The church belongs to Jesus. Jesus died for it. That's true with the global church. It's true with the church that meets here at Rocky River Church. Listen, I love you, but I didn't die for anyone in here. Jesus did. Ultimately, the church is His. He's the head of the church. He's the final authority on the church. The rest of us are members of His body. Just like with your body. You're not just a head, are you? You've got all sorts of body parts. You've got your core, you've got shoulders, arms, legs, fingers, toes. And all of them are important, right? If you don't think your fingers are important, just smash one of them. And some of us are legs, some of us are feet, some of us are arms, some of us are hands. We're all important. I may have told you guys this before, but my grandpa, the one who was a preacher, when he was a young man, he was out hunting he had a rifle with him and he had the barrel of it right on his big toe. I don't know why. He knew better too. He was a hunter. But a rabbit ran and somebody yelled out and my grandpa just pulled the trigger and shot his toe right off his foot. I don't know how old grandpa would be today. Reba, how old would he be? It was a long time ago when this happened. He was a, he was a young guy. They took him to the doctor. The doctor couldn't sew the toe on. So they just stitched him up and on the way out, the doctor threw the toe in the trash can. So my grandpa's daddy took it out of the trash can, took it home and put it in a mason jar full of vinegar. 
I grew up with that toe. <laughs> Me and my cousins, we would go into his study and we would find that toe so we could look at it. Let me tell you something. When my grandpa died at the funeral home that night after everybody had left and it was just uh, his children, my aunts and uncles and grandkids around, they opened up the foot of his casket and put that jar and that toe in that casket with him, buried it with him. I mean, he lived fine without it. But it was an adjustment. If you want to know how important your toes are, just take one of them off. You have to learn how to rebalance yourself and then you have ghost pains because he always felt like the toe was still on there even though it wasn't. He had to learn how to balance himself. Listen, the church has to do that as well. That's what the church has to do when its members are not connected to the body. Let me tell you what happens to the members of a body when they're not connected to the body. They die. I hear all the time, and it's just not true, but I hear all the time, I can be just as good a Christian and stay home and watch Joel Osteen. No, no you can't. If you're a shut-in, okay. Find your favorite TV preacher. That's fine, I get that. But you still need biblical fellowship. Even if you're shut-in, God still has a purpose and a plan for you, and you can't live that out if you're not connected in some way. You can't grow spiritually sitting at home watching church on TV. It's not the same. And you will die spiritually because you will not grow. And then the body suffers when you're not here. When you're not connected. When you're not serving. I believe every Christian has a ministry and a mission. You have a mission to the world. All of us do. It's called the Great Commission. To take the gospel to the whole world. Some people do that through a specific call to missions where they literally go onto the foreign mission field. Like John and Kimberly Quast, a, a missionary couple that we support out of our church that are literally living in a tribe of unreached people in Paraguay. Like the heralds that we support out of our church through our missions giving. They're in South Africa reaching people for Christ. Some people do it that way. Some of us help support. But all of us have a responsibility to share our testimony, to be a part of getting the gospel of Christ to the whole world, our own community, and then the global community. But then we all have a ministry. That's where we serve the body of Christ. That's why it's important. That's why we ask all the time, hey, we, or tell you, hey, we need guys in the parking lot. We need people in the lobby. We need people to teach the children. You have a mission, but you have a ministry to the body. It's not like my feet can wake up in the morning and say, hey, um, I think I'm going to go do my own thing today. Oh, you're, you're going to be the pastor at Rocky River Church? Oh, well, I think I'm going to go over here and do this. No, because I need my feet. My feet take me places. We don't all have the same function. But we all have a mission. And we all have a ministry. Mission to the world. Ministry to the body. And then the third thing I think you need to know about God's calling on your life is that my calling is God-empowered my calling is God-empowered. I mean, you can understand Moses' reaction. What do you mean? Go to the Pharaoh. How am I supposed to do this? What do I say to the people? What do I say to the Pharaoh? God says to him, I'll be with you. And that's the same promise that God gives to all of us in our calling. I'm going with you. I'll be with you. The proof of that is that one day you will be here Worshipping me. God does not call you to do things that you can do on your own. 
God calls you to do things you can only do with His help. You know, I remember thinking when God was calling me into the ministry, okay, there's got to be some confusion here. Lord, there's no way I can do this. But I got to the point in my life where I just couldn't say no anymore. And I said, okay. And then I had a, you know, the real opportunity was there for me to accept a church and become a senior pastor. And I thought, God, I just, I, I can't do this. But with his help, I fumbled through it. Now, I remember when God put the calling on mine and Karen's life to start Rocky River Church. I thought, God, I just, I can't do this. I, I can start a business. I know how to do that. Why don't you just let me start a business and then I'll just generate money and I'll give that to the ministry. I'll be some pastor's best friend. Let me let me do that, but to start a church, I I can't do that. But when I could no longer say no, I said, "Okay, I'll start the church, but let me let me start it in West Charlotte." Because I know people that live in West Charlotte. I grew up there. I said, "We can start the church with 100 people or more. Who who knows? I have family and friends that live there." Let me just do it there. And God kept closing the doors there. And I said, okay, how about the university area in Charlotte? At least that keeps me in familiar area. Let, 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 me, just, let me just do it there. And, and God just kept pushing Karen and I to this part of Cabarrus County. I said, Lord, I, I don't even like Concord. I mean, I grew up in West Charlotte. I didn't know anything about Concord. I knew there was a speedway here because I went to the race a couple times every year. I knew to get to Raleigh, you had to go up 85 and go through Concord. I dated a girl one time that lived in Harrisburg. That's all I knew about it. And when I couldn't say no anymore, I would confess things to God like, how is this ever going to work? I don't know people there. We don't know anybody. How, how is this ever going to happen? And, and I'll, I can't say that this happens every time I drive on to this church property. But at least every Sunday and probably a couple times during the week. I drive up and I think, Lord. You are amazing. You make stuff happen that's just not humanly possible. I could have never done this. Look what you have done. I was with some church planters last week and I'll say this and we'll wrap everything up and There's very much a business approach to starting churches now in lots of places. And not even wrong with, with that in some instances, but like I meet guys that are starting and they, they start with a whole team. Part of this, I'm just jealous of it, okay? Can I just admit that to you? I'm kind of jealous because you know, we had to find somebody that could help do ministry. We had to beg them and stuff like that. We... We literally started with no money, no members, no place to meet. God had to lead us to all those things. But now these teams are starting and they start with a lead pastor and they've got a worship pastor and a children's pastor and an administrative pastor and $250,000 in the bank. Wow, that would have been nice. You know, the first office we had we were 
Karen and I lived in a house that was uh, about 850 square feet. It did have three bedrooms. One of the bedrooms, well, one was for me, one for Annie, and one for um, that I was using as an office. Karen got pregnant with James, so she just came to me one day and said, Hey, listen, you know, we got a baby coming, and he's going to need a room. So I just started looking for an office. And uh, there's a dentist office in the building that we had at first. It's Dr. Mashburn's office up in 49, uh, right near Granny Max. And uh, that was one of the first buildings that I saw. It was available. There's no sign out front, no realty sign or anything like that. But there was nothing in it. And it hadn't been for maybe a couple of years, at least since I'd been paying attention and uh, I just walked around and looked at the building and thought, man, this would be an awesome office. And it's right in the middle of Harrisburg and all that. It would be great. And uh, there was a faded out note card in the window. It had a number. I could barely make it out. But I called the number and uh, it rang through the South Trust Bank. I told the lady uh, to answer the phone who I was and that I was interested in maybe renting the building that they had there. And... Uh, she put me in touch with uh, the executive vice president for that location, Leonard Barlow. And so I told Leonard who I was, that I was interested in the building. He said, well, we don't want a long-term lease on the building or we don't want to sell it or anything like that because we may put a location back in that area. And as long as we own the property, we don't have to go through the red tape of filling out paperwork and all that for the government. I said, well, we're not really interested in buying it, but I'd just like to rent it. So he set up an appointment for me to meet with Larry Black following day, his assistant. And so I met with Larry. I walked around the office just thinking, oh, my gosh, this is perfect. I mean, this is great. There's an office for me. We had a, another guy that was with us at the time, Jeremy Hyde. But Jeremy would have an office. We got a place out here to, you know, for our band to practice that we didn't have at the time. We didn't have a band. I think when we started looking at this office, there was maybe eight of us meeting in the youth building at Pitts Baptist Church, who was our sponsoring church. And uh, after I left Larry, I, w I went home and called Leonard back. I said, man, it would just be perfect. We'd love to get into that building. And he said, uh, well, great. He said, the people who were there before you paid $1,500 a month rent. Now, did I tell you that we didn't have any money? I tell you, we didn't have any members, no place to meet. We didn't even have a bank account. And uh, I don't know, I guess maybe I just took a long pause or whatever, but he said, you probably don't have $1,500 to spend. I said, no, we really don't. He said, well, how about 1000 Which I thought, that's a pretty big drop. I mean, he just cut his rent by a third. I said, well, we don't really have 1000 He said, how about 500 Wow, this guy's just cut his rent by two-thirds. I said, well, to be honest with you, we don't have that. He said, well, son, how much money do you have? I said, we don't have any money. He just laughed. I said, but here's what I'd like to ask you to do. You think about how much you need. You, you give me a price on the rent. And if the Lord's in this... I'll raise the money from month to month. He said, I'll get back with you. We started praying for that building. And me and Jeremy Hyde, I'll never forget a Saturday afternoon in March. We stood out in front of that building and said, God, if it doesn't hurt South Trust Bank and it doesn't hurt this new church, I pray that you would work this out. We were really praying that the Lord would give it to us, you know, 30 days rent free. Because I was younger and dumber, and I just, I thought, well, you know, once we tell people where we are and who we are and what we're about and what we're doing, man, there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people lining up to come to our church. Just, you know, just 30 days rent free, that's all we need. Boy, was I wrong. But about two weeks later, he called me back. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you have the building 90 days rent-free. 
Then after that, we'll figure out the rent. Man, we just thought that was the best thing in the world. And it's a miracle. A miracle. So we went over actually to, uh, to get the keys for the building. And I asked Mr. Barlow, I said, do you know anybody in Cabarrus County that sells used office furniture? He's old enough to be my dad. He's retired now. He just looked over his glasses. He said, son, you don't have anything now to put in that office, do you? And I said, no, we don't. So he called Leonard back, or he called Larry back. And he said, oh, Larry, I want you to meet these guys over at the storage building and just let them pick out whatever they need for that building. I remember the, the night we got everything moved in. It's about four of us that had everything moved, moved in the building. Once they left, I was sitting in my office in a high back Italian leather desk, sitting behind a banker's desk. I don't even know how much that thing is worth. And Lord, this is impossible. It's impossible. The story's a little bit longer, but just to cut to the chase, we were in that building 30 days short of five years rent-free. We never paid a penny for that building, except the utilities, and we put a roof on it once. We did the general maintenance. I could have never worked that out. I could have never negotiated that. I think I'm a pretty good negotiator, but I couldn't have worked that out. But God did. God does the impossible when you trust Him, when you're obedient, when you're faithful. So I guess maybe the, the, the logical next question in all of this is when you're trying to find God's will for your life, I mean, how do you hear from it? I mean, because I've never heard God speak in an audible voice. But I know that God is called. So how do you hear from God? Well, you, you can hear from other people. Sometimes God speaks through circumstances. But primarily, primarily, the way God speaks to us is through His Word. Moses heard from God when he was willing to be intimate with God, face-to-face with Him. And the way for you and me to be face-to-face with God is to get into this book. And if you're not willing to get into this book to hear from God, then you're not going to hear from Him. I mean, some of you have been Christians for years and years and you're still frustrated because you don't know God's plan and God's purpose for your life and it's because you won't crack open a Bible to try to learn about Him. A few months ago, we issued this next level challenge where we asked everyone to read the Gospels between the first Sunday of January and Easter Sunday. And some of you have taken the challenge, but the truth is that some of you hadn't. The purpose for that challenge was to get you in the Word. So if you haven't taken that next level challenge, I want to give you another challenge today because I want to get you in this book. I want to get you face to face with God. So here's what I want you to do. Write this down. For the next 40 days, I want you to read the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. There's 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel, 24 chapters in Luke's Gospel. Get face to face with the Lord. Ask Him to speak to you. Ask Him to show Himself to you. He will. He wants to talk with you. But listen, you're never going to find God's purpose just by reading Rick Warren's book, What on Earth Am I Here For? I love Rick, but that book's not the Bible. You're not going to discover it through a self-help book or being a part of Oprah's reading list. Not anything wrong with reading those kinds of books, but you're not going to hear from God in those books. This book, which contains the true living Word of God, is where you will meet God face to face. And if you're not willing to get into this Word, you're not going to hear from Him. So what I want you to do, and do it right now, if you, I mean, if you're really serious about hearing from God, 
I want you to take your connection card. It's the one that Donnie mentioned earlier. I want you to write your name on it and an email address. And on your way out today, drop it into the offering basket. And I want you to start today. Don't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow never comes, does it? Where are our dieters? Monday don't come, so don't wait till tomorrow. Start it today. Get into the Word today. And um, this afternoon, Karen and I are going to make a database with everybody who fills these out from this morning's service and this service. I want to send you an email to say, hey, today is Mark 1. Tomorrow, I want to send you one saying, today is Mark 2. Let's get in this. Let's read this together. Let's get face to face with God. Let me pray with us. Our band is coming. They're going to sing a song that I want you to listen to. And then we're going to have prayer together and go into a short business session. But right now, I just want you to take a moment to make sure that your heart is open to the Lord. So every head bowed and and every eye closed. God, it's really easy to watch the news and see all that's going on in the world, in our country and in other countries like in the Ukraine and Russia, the Middle East, and just be discouraged and maybe even have doubts about you. Lord, there seems to be so much darkness in the world. I mean, there are people that are living as slaves, not unlike the the Hebrew people that we that we meet when we get into the book of Exodus. They're sex slaves today. In fact, if we can believe in world statistics, there are as many slaves in the world today as there ever have been. And Lord, they're important. The church ought to be about rescuing them. Lord, you've also given us your mission, which we call the Great Commission, which is to take the gospel to the whole world. Lord, I believe it as much standing here today as I did 14 years ago when we were starting Rocky River Church. I believe it as much today as I did 20 years ago when I was accepting your call into ministry that the gospel is... Needed today as much as ever before. People are living in spiritual darkness and are slaves to their sins. And we have this mission to go and set them free. And as a part of that, you've called us all. You've called us all to your son, Jesus, and the call to Christ is the call to minister. But some of us perhaps have been like that member of the body that's separated from the body and we've been dying spiritually and the body's been having to do without us. We've been sitting back on the sidelines and not just not getting involved. We don't feel the urgency to share our faith and to really trust in you to do the impossible. I pray that even right now in this moment, you would change our hearts and minds on that. That we would believe in a gospel that still sets people free. That we would recognize that we have a calling and a responsibility to partner with you in the Great Commission. And then we can do anything you've called us to because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.